Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of May It Displease the Court. A podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been. But especially under the Trump administration. Since law school, I've been taught that the force of the judicial system is the butting of heads between liberal and conservative viewpoints. The winner swings back and forth. Sometimes it gets gridlocked. But lately, it has really gone off the rails in favor of conservatism. It's become increasingly visible that the courts are no longer a clash of ideals. It's now just a patina of ideals, a veneer. I couldn't have put it better myself, except no one knows who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, so, yes, I am Mary, and I am uh, an attorney. I've been a practicing attorney for almost 20 years, not quite. The majority of that time, I've been working for indigent clients, um, which means that I'm appointed by the court to represent people who can't afford to hire their own attorney. And I am now focusing my practice on appellate advocacy. Also, I have kids. So working in the time of COVID means that you may hear them come home unexpectedly and cry. And for that, I apologize. <laughs> Oh, you don't need to apologize. That's just the patriarchy getting in your head. Uh, So yeah, so that's Mary. I'm Lee, and uh, I'm a rhetorician. I work at a state school in New York called Geneseo. You're going to learn a little bit about Geneseo today. I got some stories, got some dish. Uh, Use she, they pronouns. I'm also, I have another podcast, Rhetorically Speaking, and I also host for the New Books Network podcast, which we're going to hear some highlights from an interview from there as well. So And then Mary and I are like, you know, long-term old school best friend, former relatives and such. And now we have a podcast. So Mary, tell them what the podcast is about today. All right. In this episode, we are going to pick up on a train of thought from episode one. And episode one was all about this myth of judges as unbiased beings who make their judgments from like a place of wisdom and pure independence, meaning that they're not in anybody's pockets. When in fact, judges are often deeply biased, and worse, there's a lot of evidence that they are increasingly in the pockets of big money corporations and far-right politicians are absolutely hell-bent on rolling back civil liberties. Yeah, and so we're kind of sticking with this theme that money is infiltrating cornerstone institutions of American democracy. But, you know, in episode one, we kind of focused on the courts and the judges in particular. And in this episode, we are focusing on academics. You know, my people, but not not like my people, um, <laughs> the, the academics who have sold their research to the highest bidder. So pseudo academics, fake academics, you know, up for sale academics. So we have this collective mythology of academics, at least in this country, and it's not as glorious of that uh, of judges. You know, kind of like this crazy liberal professor sits in their ivory tower, in, like bad wardrobe and just like churns out books and research, you know, by candlelight or whatever. And yes. Most people think, and probably are kind of correct, that academics are very out of touch with the real world. But nonetheless, I do think, even though they're not as unassailable and kind of divine as judges tend to be, there is this idea that they know what they're doing. And in fact, you know, the classic academic also has a robe. So if you look at like Harry Potter and stuff, right, they wear their robes. And so there is this idea that their research is evidence-based, rigorously judged, you know, fucking academic. 
And that you can trust it. Well, the problem with that is now big money has infiltrated academia. It's in public universities. It's in private universities. It's in law schools. And the way they get in is they use charitable donations. And I, I don't know if you could hear my air quotes, but charitable donations are what they're using to put money into institutions. And they tie the continued giving of those. They're like mm-hmm. staged gifts. So it's like, oh, here's $10 million. And you get you know a million each year if you follow these rules. And, you know, a lot of these rules are, hey, we get a say in who these professors are and and who gets tenure and, you know, whatever else the the contract says. And so they use these charitable donations to push forward their agenda on what research gets done and what is research saying. Now, we know that the Koch brothers have paid for a whole host of anti-climate change science. Again, more air quotes. We know that the tobacco industry has paid for studies that smoking doesn't harm people. That's been debunked. And we know that Volkswagen paid for studies to say that their emissions were not polluting. Again, debunked. Right. And it's not just that they're paying for research. Research is a hard word. (laughs) It's really hard to say. We got to stop. You know, they're paying for for the writing. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, these big corporations use donations, promotion, tenure, the whole deal. And so if we know that academics and judges and lawyers are being bought and paid for, or if we suspect, because, you know, of course, we don't know. We'll talk about that as a huge problem. But if we know or suspect that these that they're being paid for by corporations with horrifying motivations to pollute and screw over and oppress, then you cannot trust these myths that wearing a robe or having a PhD makes you any better or worse than any other politician in the pocket of the highest bidder. And honestly, what's like really awful is that the vast majority of people have no idea that this is going on because average people have no connection to these big corporate money yeah. ideas. They're just, you know, they're trusting these institutions, which that's the whole point. They're, they're, mm-hmm. That's exactly what big money is banking on. And, you know, for most people, life is a clash of ideas in your family over dinner at the table, you know, on Facebook. So that's what we do. We argue with people in our family or we debate these things. We debate our classmates or our former classmates or our friends and neighbors. So this reactionary anti-democratic right tied to big money is getting away with this con on America. Mm. And even the Supreme Court, the liberal justices there will argue that, you know, well, this is a clash of ideas. You know, they they seem to fully continue to buy that we're still operating on a clash of ideals, but that's not what's going on. Yeah. One side is trying, the liberal side is trying to clash ideals. The other side isn't. Yeah, th- right. They're not interested in democracy, right? They want fascism. They want total control. They do not want a clash of ideas. They want a monopoly on the marketplace of ideas, just like they want corporate monopolies, all the while saying, oh, I support the Constitution and its originalism, even though the Constitution is anti-monopoly. <laughs> And, you know, there's been this this secret breach of trust that I was talking, you know, alluding to before. Most people are operating as if there hasn't been this huge betrayal of what it means to be an academic or a lawyer or a judge or anybody else who is supposed to be participating in this clash of ideals in good faith to say things that they actually believe in because, you know, they have read the laws or gotten an education or done the research you know, that's what we think is going on. We don't think that they're promoting ideals that have been bought and paid for. We think a judge is judging. We think a researcher is researching. We don't think that they're a propaganda machine. Now, I had 
this friend in law school, really brilliant. You know, he's really one of my closest friends, probably my closest conservative friend. We're absolutely genuine friends. And we took constitutional law together. And at the end of con- the the course, we had a 24-hour exam, which is as hellish as it sounds. I took 23 hours to finish this exam. I wrote it out. I turned it in. And mind you, this is a 100% of our grades, These this exam. No papers, nothing. It's just this one exam. So, you know, of course, I, I wrote it out. I, I turned it in. I was done. And I met up with my friend. And he really liked to go over exams. And I'm, you know, I'm super nervous and worried, you know, because this is 100% of your grade. It's really stressful. So we go over the exam. And like a nerd, I go through every question with him. And we answered each question totally opposite. I wrote a liberal exam. He wrote a conservative exam. We both cited different cases. We came out with totally opposite results. And I, and he's so smart and persuasive. I, I was like, I secretly like left that, that little meeting and I cried. I was so upset. I thought I failed because we had argued totally opposite exams. And then we got our grades and it turns out that we both got A's. We had just written opposite exams you know, but so what, right? Like I, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. So we were just ideologically totally opposite. And, you know, this guy from law school, we were just on different sides of the belief system and we were clashing on the interpretation of the facts in the law, which is, you know, that's exactly the way that the law has always been imagined to work throughout, you know, you know, American history. So for me, he was like the epitome of the ideological other side. And I think he was that for a lot of people in law school. So, and I say this because, you know, as, you know, Trump was running and, you know, I don't see him in person. I see him on Facebook and he starts out and he was, you know, he wasn't for Trump and he he was supporting other people in the primaries. And then once Trump won the primary, you know, he kind of switched to being more pro-Trump. And so people would other classmates, you know, people I didn't know, but where I would see on his wall would be like, wait a minute, but this is hypocritical. You can't be for him because, you know, he's violating all of these conservative principles that you've always espoused. And, you know, at first he was like, yeah, you know, that that's different. But, you know, and, 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 but, you know, this is why I still support Trump or this is why I support Trump. And then eventually he just like stopped. Like, you know, he couldn't argue against the, the hypocrisy of it. He just is like, well, I'm just not talking about this anymore. Like, I, I, I you're not convincing me. This is how, you know, this is how I feel. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, because when you right, because you sort of pointed out an incompatible set of beliefs. And so basically, eventually he can't keep up. Right, because because once once somebody kind of comes face to face with the fact that they're they have conflicting belief systems. This is so anyway, this is a side note, but in psychology, they have this theory of cognitive dissonance, which has already always drove me so crazy as a rhetorician because, like, the psych when psychologists talk about like persuasion, they say, Oh, you just need to point out to people that their I that their behavior or their belief system clashes with another like value system, and then they'll they'll convert, they'll be persuaded because they don't want to be misaligned. And I was like, Right, but the flaw there is you're assuming that if I say, Oh, you're a conservative, you believe this, and Trump is this other thing that's not that, that you're going to go for the side that I'm trying to convince you. But in most people's cases, they just shut down and kind of like almost like glue over the contradiction 
and and disappear. So like it's very hard to persuade someone by pointing out hypocrisies because cognitive dissonance doesn't make us change our minds. It makes us retreat from critical thinking, right? And it's also a really important point here that what y'all were doing was not trying to bring this guy to liberalism, right? It was not about persuading him not to support Trump because you wanted him to support a liberal, the liberal idea. You were trying to bring him back to a consistent set of conservative arguments. So sort of like I think of um, the never Trumpers, which is a group of like what I'd call real Republicans with actual conservative values, like the Lincoln Project, who keep trying to tell people like this Trump dude, not a Republican, not a conservative. And, and that's sort of like what you were trying to show. And the solution was just stop talking about it, right? Yeah. Uh- a hundred percent. And so eventually I just stopped. Yeah, I stopped. Other people stopped. And, and I actually, you know, kind of distanced myself and I really couldn't look at his Facebook anymore because and I didn't call him as much, you know, and, and it's only recently that, that I did that I did reach out because I was just I couldn't rationalize how this was happening, you know, because he's one of the most analytical, logical people, he's able to argue all of these things at a very high level, you know, and I've been, I've been really confused and confounded and honestly grieving. I've been grieving, um, these, the shift in Republicanism because I really bought that we were on opposite sides and that we could argue about this and, and that, you know, we could convince each other and we could persuade each other. And that that was the point of, that was exactly what I was going to school to try to do. So, you know, it's been very hard to then run up against uh, these unchangeable views that are, you know, with people. It's been it's been really it's been really upsetting. And I'm not saying that this friend of mine has been paid by anybody, you know, to change his mind. I I don't I, I, I see zero evidence of that. But what I'm saying is that his ability to hold support for Trump and be as smart as he is about conservative ideology, and I mean true conservative ideology, shows how effective this group of Coke donors and anti-democratic far-right politicians have been at changing what it means to be a conservative and that money has infiltrated. It's been used to legitimize this change of ideals. You know, and coming in and having an academic say different things legitimizes these horrifying and obviously flawed policies. I mean, their goal has been to change the way America thinks, to redefine what liberty means, redefine what freedom means, use academics, PR people, politicians, the media to legitimize pro-corporate ideals that are pretending to be what the founding fathers intended. I mean, what conservative meant in the 60s, what it meant on the on the you know constitutional law exam and law school, they've changed that. And that change didn't happen through a clash of ideals as to, you know, it's not like the their best idea won. It happened right, because yeah. it's been paid for. Mm. And, you know, this is this is where the party has gone. I mean, this is, this is my, my friend has kind of bought into that. He, he, he tracks what the party does. And even if that is contradictory to these conservative values, and I think we have to just stop acting as if this is a clash of ideals. You know, you can't have a clash of ideals when you have one side that is funded by dark money. Mm. And this academic cohort is being paid to peddle this agenda and they're peddling it as if it's an ideal and that is dishonest. Yes, that's right. You know, and, and a good example of that is is healthcare. 
Okay. Mm. Obamacare came in, they called and they renamed it Obamacare and they tried to make it into this terrible thing. And people are like, yeah, I hate Obamacare. This is terrible. Repeal repeal Obamacare. Yeah. Right. And then they got the Affordable Care Act and, you know, they got cancer. You know, some people in there or loved ones did and they got treatment and then they're like, oh, this I like. This is great. You know, and, and the problem is, is this propaganda campaign that the, the that dark money is pushing forward is a minority position. It's the minority position of the property elite class. It's not something that Americans, uh, regular working people are going to be for because it is against their interest. Yeah. Um, and Obamacare is a really good example of the way that private funding can really influence public opinion because Affordable Care Act and Obamacare are the same thing. But so in rhetoric, we have this concept of dissociation and dissociation is key because you have to take this thing called Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, which is the same thing, right? It's like if if Affordable Care Act is a circle and Obamacare is a circle, they overlap entirely. This is not a Venn diagram. This is the same circle, but you have to split them so that there, there's actually this internal divide within the concept so that people can be like, yay, Affordable Care Act, and then be like, fuck Obamacare, and not at all recognize that that's a problem. And in fact, in 2017, when Trump was first elected and there was this big, um, like his big campaign promise was to repeal Obamacare, right, because it's socialism and all this shit, there was a poll, I think New York Times published it, um, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I, I can't remember who did the poll, that a third of people surveyed didn't know Obamacare and Affordable Care were the same thing. So that's how they could say, yes, I want, no, I don't want. And it's not just ignorance, that's, it's, it's a perpetuated, funded campaign of disinformation. Right, because the, this property minority position is not about creating a better life for you. In fact, entrenching their power at all levels of government is going to make your life, my life, much, much, much worse. And they are absolutely 100% going to lie to you and everybody else to try to get you on board. They are just trying to stuff as much money as possible into the hands of the fewest people. And they have these paid people, these academics, judges, politicians, and they are their surrogate liars. Okay, it's unclear whether these people know that they're surrogate liars or if you know they've yeah. been they're they're just uh parasitic hosts for this dark money that has invaded them to do their bidding and has taken over their mind. You know, so they're just saying like, well, I funded your research, so there you funded my research, so therefore, you know, I I'm just predisposed to say what you want. You know, it's possible they're literally being bribed. Yeah. And actually, I realized something um we should probably say what dark money is because it sounds very conspiratorial, but it's just kind of a catch-all term. Do you want to tell that? Do you want to tell everybody what you mean when you say dark money? When I say dark money, it is uh, it's money that is paid for by anonymous donors. So you don't know exactly where the money is coming from. It's kind of all goes into these shell corporations, and then it gets doled out. So we know, you know, that certain institutes like the Cato Institute is funded by the Koch brothers and other, you know, conservative people. So in some ways we are able to track where these big money is coming from, but other other 
Other times it's it's anonymous and that's the problem. And these aren't like small, this isn't like a grassroots campaign. This is like yeah, right. people putting, you know, several tens of millions of dollars towards something and they don't want anybody to know that they're putting that money to influence, you know, either the academic or, you know, who's where the judge is coming. And so when, when we don't know who's paying for it, uh, where the public doesn't know, let me be perfectly clear, when the public doesn't know, because it doesn't have to be disclosed, I'm certainly not saying that nobody knows, but the public doesn't know. That's what we call dark money. Yeah. And uh, to give credit where credit's due, there's a book, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. So similar to another book we'll talk about later, but um, it's by Jane Mayer, who's an awesome investigative journalist. So that phrase is Jane's and there is a track. I mean, it's hard to find, but if you're an investigative journalist who like publishes in the New York Times, like Jane Mayer is, you, you know, she kind of like, that's what the book is about. It's about, it's about making a case that this dark money is leaving a certain trail. Uh, but you know, it's naturally hard to track. So again, it's an, just want to point out. It's intentionally hard to track. Yes. So just want to point out, we're not being conspiratorial here, but there's, this is actually a concept that most people who understand how, you know, money and politics works agree <laughs> is definitely underway. All right. So, um, yeah, so, and, and again, Mary and I are speculating on a lot of this stuff, uh, but there is actual evidence that it's happening. And, you know, between Mary's experience in the courts and my experience as an academic and what we can read and do research about and where we can see that people making opposite arguments have not done their research, you know, after a while, the evidence points to a conclusion. And that conclusion is that the dark money is infiltrating academia just like it is the courts. And so to talk about another book, Mary and I had uh, a really good interview with Nancy McLean, who's a professor at Duke University. And Nancy wrote a book, came out actually around the same time as Dark Money. Um, it's called Democracy in Chains, A Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. So in the book, McLean, McLean's like more like a, of an archivist. So she goes back into the, the deep archives and finds that for the last like several decades, there has been a capitalist radical right working, you know, not only to, to get new leaders in power, but to change the rules of democratic governance is, is McLean's argument. And so at the heart of this stealth plan is a political economist, right, an academic, James McGill Buchanan, who, you know, basically decided like in the 60s after Brown v. Board of Education gave rights to black people that he was going to spend the rest of his life uh, you know, putting together corporate donors and right-wing foundations and academics and politicians, you know, Charles Koch being a big player here, to teach people how to divide America into uh, what McLean calls makers and takers. Right. And the key to all of this is that these right-wing academics who are being bought and paid for by corporate do donors use their research to legitimize these horrible anti-democratic theories. Yes. And so here's Nancy talking about something called the Thomas Jefferson Center for Political Economy and Social Philosophy, which is one of many examples, one of the earliest examples of its kind, of these corporate-sponsored right-wing academic initiatives where they breed academics whose research is going to legitimize the constitutional suppression of civil rights and also like supporting pro-corporate policies. Going back to uh, the 1950s with that, um, that founding of the Thomas Jefferson Institute, which he also chose, he said, you know, the name, they didn't want people to get the extremist program. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so they gave it an anodyne name in a university founded by Thomas Jefferson. But so that really is um, just an archetypal story of the corporate university, as people call it now, you know, the it, things that so many of us are dealing with, where education is being defunded, you know, where students are 
aren't getting access to what they need, and yet donors are having this huge impact on the schools and on curriculum, et cetera. All right, that was decades ago. Now you have got these bought and paid for academic institutions springing up in plain sight across the country. Chapman University, there was a huge controversy that's uh, out here in, in California. There was a controversy about a donation that they were getting and about how that donation was tied to, uh, from the Koch brothers, was tied to a continued say in who got tenure, who got promotion. Mm-hmm. And they even had professors like from the English department hired into the economics department, which did not make any sense. And it was, it was, you know, done as a payback, you know, for, uh, for, for, for the Koch foundation. And, it, you know, there was this big uproar amongst professors and students, you know, that were saying, you know, we do not want this influence in our university. Uh, we have Liberty University in Virginia. That's a you know kind of a private Christian uh, institution. It makes a little bit more sense in a private institution for there to be this kind of infiltration, but that's not where they're stopping. They're they're not stopping at private universities. They're also getting into public universities, and I think yeah, there's which a is real the problem. problem. Is, yeah. A real problem with that. I mean, if you want to go to Ayn Rand University, you know, and just like. <laughs> tattoo libertarianism all over your forehead, whatever, you know, I mean, at least there's honesty with that. Um, but, you know, trying to get your, you know, your, your hooks into public universities, which we all mm-hmm. pay for, for example, yes. George Mason Law School is basically funded, you know, through and, and created through the, you know, this Coke donor network. And, you know, they took it from this really like rinky dink operation into something much larger, but they did it without really letting anybody know, you know, like the public doesn't realize necessarily, you know, that, oh, these are, these are Coke funded, you know, positions. Yeah. uh, UC Davis, University of California, Davis. So there's an article, Molly McCloskey in the Atlantic writes about um, how like researchers at UC Davis regularly get invited to attend these on-campus meet and greets with potential corporate funders to discuss, you know, sponsorship opportunities. And so they, they, you know, she says, handshakes and business cards are routinely exchanged and so are non-disclosure agreements. And so we put a link if you want to read the rest of the, but um, it's a problem and, and it makes sense because funding, I mean, we're watching this right now with COVID. I mean, funding for the state university system of New York is getting slashed. In the meantime, we have been increasingly infiltrated by Coke like Wisconsin, anti-labor unions, right? Trying to like tear down all of the the teachers and collective bargaining. And so who is the university going to turn to? Who is, who is Cuomo, our governor, who is notoriously kind of a corporate liberal? You think he's not going to turn down Coke money to help, help like keep this institution afloat during all of this? No. And the fact that, you know, people just assume it's not happening is a problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. In in 2014, Florida State University students, you know, were fighting back saying that they didn't want Coke corporate money influencing their campus. And we also have a link to that article. So, you know, this isn't, you know, this is something that, you know, that that has been spoken about and, and you know, and, and, and institutions have tried to fight back. But again, as Lee was pointing out, you know, when in cash strapped times, you know, universities are, are, are you know, presidents are taking the money. 
Yeah. And like, nobody gives a fuck about me. Right. But like, I don't know, suppose I publish a book and somehow it manages to go, you know, get really important. And I, you know, some, some, I mean, I would never do this just because I'd rather die uh, penniless. Um, but, you know, suppose some institution and maybe even they're like more benign. Maybe it's a shell corporation of Coke that doesn't look like Coke, but I would have no idea uh, comes to me and is like, oh, we'd love to spot. I mean, this shit happens all the time. And in fact, like we're told that grant funding, external grants, right, that these things and it doesn't matter from where. Like if you look at my tenure and review package, it does not say like you get X number of points for shitty ass corporate fossil fuel funding versus X points for a nonprofit, of course, because no, there's no money for the National Endowment for the Humanities to fund a book anymore because Trump took it all away. Not that there was a lot to begin with. So if they come to me and they're like, oh, we're going to give you like $20,000 to fund your book and it seems like an okay deal and like, oh, they're not harming anybody. Um, like it's a hard deal to turn down. And so you got to imagine this shit is happening all over the place because, you know, as, as, as McLean's book documents and there are other books, I mean, she's not the first one that they've been really smart to try to get into academia because what better way to legitimize your shitty anti-social, anti-democratic arguments and theories than to have academics say that they're academically sound. Right. Right. Well, and they're not just meddling. They're not just meddling in how they and how they pay for research. They're also meddling in in what campus life is like. Period. Oh my god! So I totally have a story about this. I didn't even think about right. Yeah, because 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 academic campuses in some ways have historically set the tone for social justice, and that's why, as as you know, the country has moved further right post 1960 civil rights. You're seeing academic campuses also move further right. I mean, I'll tell you right now, this myth of the liberal Berkeley campus where they're like burning flags and that shit is just not happening. I mean, campuses are increasingly. moving to the right. And and it's in part because of these operations. So like fire, so fire is a really good example. And it's the only one I actually have personal experience with. So it's, it's called the foundation for individual rights in education, right? Sounds great. Except whenever I see the word individual, I'm always terrified. If it were called foundation for collective rights in education, now that's an organization I could get behind. So we have this, um, so what they are, they say they're like, their tagline is experienced, nonpartisan, defending your rights. Except, of course, rights are a rhetorical construct. So it's like, well, which rights are you defending? How are you defining them? And so what they actually are is they're a far right donor funded organization that has all of these like they're like they're like am- they're like Amnesty International, except instead of looking for human rights violations, they look for uh, perfectly legitimate um, civil rights arguments that they can turn into like free speech right? Propaganda. So they look on college campuses for controversies around free speech so that then they can go in and use the controversy to rally disenfranchised, like libertarian conservative students and faculty on campus, like further to the right. So they're sort of like the way that Reddit uh, recruits among this same disenfranchised group, right? That's kind of like what fire does on college campuses. And it's a, and it's a ripe area for the picking. I mean, I, I always, I mean, one of my biggest problems is conservative libertarian students who just like do not think that what I believe is true. And they also are constantly being told like, oh, that's a microaggression. Oh, like this is historical oppression. Oh, white privilege. And they don't want to hear that shit, you know? So if somebody comes in and, and comes to their aid and, you know, says, oh, like you're, you have your free speech, you get to say what you want. I mean, they're so excited about that shit. So, and in the process of, of fire being on all these campuses, they tie up any ability to talk about anything because they've made it now such a hotbed for controversy and people coming to protest and internet flurry that, you know, the campus just wants it to go away. 
So the, the, so the, the irony, right, the very purposeful hypocritical irony is that they're saying that we're infringing on people's free speech and the ability to have controversy and all this shit, but they're the one gridlocking the actual ability to have conversations. And so, um, you know, and it doesn't matter. Like there've been people in, in the Sunni system over the last couple of years, like hate slurs, putting swastikas on blackboards. A couple of years ago, somebody left a noose uh, in the dorm bed of like one of the only black students on campus at the time. And um, there's been a bunch of like students from New York state schools, which is a public fucking university going on Snapchat, writing things like, and I quote, I'm going to lynch some N words tonight, except they spelled it out. And so um, at Geneseo, our case was like, you know, not quite that, but not great. And so two students, like they hopped on Snapchat, they had this black shit all over their face and they're kind of like throwing what looked to be gang signs. And there's a caption in the background and they're standing in front of the gazebo, which I think this is important. Nobody talks about this, but that's like the icon of the, the university. So it's almost in some ways like they're using copyrighted iconography. And that's I think that's important for the argument. And next to the photograph, it says blackface and bay. Like, first of all, what possessed you to do a blackface Snapchat in the middle of a controversy about black face Snapchat. I mean, I would understand if it were the first one and they just like screwed up, but oh my God, read the fucking room. So then they immediately post another one that says, just kidding. These are face masks because they were wearing these charcoal face masks that you buy at CVS. And so no sooner had anyone seen this image than fire hops onto campus. They're writing cease and desist letters. They're publishing shit on their website. They're writing things to the school newspaper. Um, and they're saying all this stuff, right? Like, if you take any action against these students, it's a violation of their civil rights. It's going to have a freezing effect, that's going, a chilling effect, which is going to prevent everyone else from, from, from standing up for their free speech, yada, yada, yada. Now, I go ahead, because, you know, I'm a rhetorician and nobody cares about rhetoric, but I did it anyway. And I deep read this thing because the students were passing this around, right? Because they don't fucking know. They have no idea what this organization is. And I, like... I looked at everything this thing was saying. It was like they had they had the wrong information, incorrect name of the lawyer. They're quoting responses from the administration that never happened. They're they're talking about like free speech legislation and constitutional law that is definitely not correct. And I send this to my administration and I'm like, you need to say something, right? Because the students are sending this around as if fire is correct, right? They're setting the agenda for how people are thinking about this debate. Um, and, and they're like, we cannot say anything. Okay, wait, wait. So let me get this straight because, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm not college anymore, even though it's <laughs> Um, So FIRE doesn't, they're not, they're not actually talking to the administration. They're, they're just putting out this, their position directly to the students. Is that correct? It seems that way because if they did talk to the administration, they misquoted everything about them in the article. So everything about the article would indicate that no communication had happened. They were just saying that these are the things that had happened. Where was the but, article? Where did the article oh, come out? They they sent it. So they they put published it on their website, um, which then of course got picked up on some of the news outlets. Like I don't think this particular case, but another case got picked up on like Rush Limbaugh. Because uh, again, I mean they're pretty well coordinated, and so people are talking about all of the problems on SUNY Geneseo and how we're oppressing free speech, all based on not anything that had actually happened on campus. Because at this point, nothing had happened, right? We didn't, we hadn't kicked her out. We hadn't, I mean, how her name wasn't even made public, you know? Uh, it's all based on what FIRE said was going to happen because of their, you know, propaganda articles. And then they also sent a copy to the school newspaper and told them, like, to publish it. But of course, you know, the school newspaper was at least smart enough to be like, well, this is sort of a suspicious letter um 
but that's sort of the cycle. So it's really interesting because it's such a campaign of disinformation, but the school can't argue back, right? Number one, they don't have the time because they're so busy dealing with all this stuff that like, who's going to take the time to write a response? And number two, because they can't give out the facts of the situation because it's in violation of the students' rights. So they can't say anything because they're trying to be like good, you know, they're trying to do what's right, which is not to shit all over this student and actually try to like protect her. Also, I can only imagine that they're probably tied up in, in threats of lawsuits from the parents or the families, you know. Um, so so basically there's a vacu- an information vacuum that's being filled by fire and they know that's how it's going to work. So it's a genius operation. And now everyone on campus thinks that free speech is under threat, even though so far all that's happened is a bunch of students were pissed off about a Snapchat. Right. Even the two students, the lynching, we're going to go lynch some N-words tonight, never were expelled from that SUNY school. They eventually quit because the, the climate was so hostile, which to me seems like a fair, but never once was their free speech violated, right? They weren't, they weren't reprimanded. They weren't, uh, they weren't publicly censored. Nothing. But everybody thinks that free speech is under threat. Well, free, that isn't even what free speech means. I mean, well, free, speech, yes. free speech doesn't mean speech without consequence. You know, it, free speech means, you know, that the government doesn't come down and shut down, uh, you know, speech. So, well, and I you actually, you know, so this is interesting. I, I actually sort of like made the argument like they're standing in front of the gazebo, which is probably like one of the top three most recognized landmarks on campus. Right. They're both students of the school. They're on campus property. It seems to me like like this has definitely left the realm of free individual speech and moved into they're like acting as representatives of the university promoting the use of blackface. So and, and, you know, somebody even said to me that would be a great argument if we lived in a society where arguments mattered. But what what matters is that anything we do because of these these organizations that do this kind of shit is going to look like free speech infringement. So we can, we literally can't argue back because any defense we make, they, they have already written the framework that people are going to use as public opinion to think about this. And they'll lose enrollment because most of our students are white. No white parent is going to send a kid to a school worried that their kid's free speech is going to be infringed upon, right? Worried that we're like targeting conservatives. Even though, again, I just want to reiterate, nothing happened to this student. I think they're still enrolled, but I don't know because like there was, this is what I think is so crazy. There was a 400 person group chat on my campus of all the minority students on campus, which is not a lot of people, unfortunately, but it's a pretty big group chat. They all knew the name of this student. Not a one of them ever told anybody, not the press, not the angry mob on campus, nobody, right? So they're there defending this this student's right, right? Protecting them for being an idiot, essentially, to make sure they didn't get like the shit beat out of them. Meanwhile, FIRE is telling everyone that the liberals on campus are oppressing free speech. Ridiculous. And because this is an outside, you know, funded organization, you know, they're they're operating. You would need to have, you know, uh, a a leftist organization that was funded, that was outside of the organization to come in. Except it doesn't it doesn't exist. You know, everyone's like, oh, it's 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 both sides. It's like, no, it's not both sides. There is no counter to that. Like that doesn't that, that no one it doesn't happen. No one's yeah, paying well, for that. And I think, you know, and this kind of gets back to sort of what McLean is saying, which is that that academics have legitimized. And in fact, I actually sat in meetings where this person, biologist, thank God they're retired now, 
kept trying to bring the, oh, I think it was the University of Chicago statement on free speech from the 60s to these meetings and be like, we got to pass a statement on free speech. We got to protect academic speech, which by the way, there's no such thing as academic speech. Academic speech is actually a narrower interpretation of freedom of speech that was made up by academics in the 60s, some for good reason, because they didn't want, you know, they were speaking out against the war and all this stuff. And they, they wanted to be able to teach what they thought was right in the classroom. Angela Davis, classic example, she gets fired from Berkeley. Um, because, you know, she was teaching in the classroom about re- rebellion and dissent and uprising and oppression. And people were like, oh, you're inciting riots. We're going to fire you. But now this theory that was invented by academics who did research is just being peddled around like, oh, look, free speech, academic speech. It's a theory. It's real. And people believe it's real because academics say it's real. But now those are the same academics like this guy who wanted to be able to teach that like men and women are biologically dissimilar and women are meant to like nurture. You know, he wanted to teach that like backwards ass Neanderthal shit in the classroom. He's the person now trying to peddle this academic theory, yet he's done none of the research to support it. I don't think he was Coke funded. Nobody cared about that guy. But he's just like an example of how this stuff gets circulated around. So so to, to, to get us back to Nancy, she makes a similar argument that I think is really important about the economic theory of individual choice or public choice. Um, so the so rational choice economics. So just to give you, so for people who don't really know much about economics, remember back when the healthcare thing was coming out and people were like, oh, we need a public option for healthcare. It can't just be socialist healthcare for everyone or privatized healthcare. There needs to be like, everyone gets some healthcare, but then there's like a public choice option. And it was like, no, no, no. Because once public choice enters into the picture, you're back into the land of the people who have can purchase and the people who do not get screwed. But even though, um, in, like, even though many econ- economists throughout history have looked at power and the role of corporate interest and how important a collective ethics of equality is, uh, you know how economics has been approached at several points in history, like the 30s during the New Deal, uh, the late 50s and 60s during civil rights, again in the 70s after the economic depression, again in the 08 bailout, which was started by Bush, a Republican. Let's not forget that, right? Even though all of that has happened. This, this Buchanan guy, he wins a Nobel Prize for, bu- for public choice economics in 86 when Reagan is in power. And so everybody thinks this is a great theory because, oh, it's spo- like academics believe in it. They write research on it. The market determines what people need. You know, people should be allowed to buy what they can afford. Even though it is terrible for democracy, it perpetuates elitist policies uh, and so many economists. Um, and a really good example is Stuart Hall. Uh, who wrote a whole piece of articles. He was a cultural theorist, but he was also an economist uh, called What is an Economy For? And his argument was like, look, economy is an empty word. Doesn't mean anything. You can make it mean tons of stuff. How do you want to think about an economy? There are many theories. There's Marxist economy. There's Keynesian economics. Instead, everybody like lauds this public choice economy. But as Nancy explains, it's it's not a real theory based in research. It's a speculation made up because it would serve Buchanan's interests in building a propertied elite class and suppressing civil rights. Okay, so here's Nancy explaining that again. This whole um, philosophy of public choice, which is a certain kind of uh, political economy, was actually from the very beginning um, highly political, donor funded. But in academic terms, they presented themselves as advancing a neutral science, a science of explaining how people behaved outside the market and particularly in government or the nonprofit sector. And the, the core thesis was that they 
they, they, they kind of took the, the notion of, you know, economic man, homo economicus from free market economics and applied it to public life and said people are only ever acting in their own rational self-interest, not what they claim. So it was a debunking effort to say that people in public life who say they're talking about the common good, et cetera, are frauds, essentially, and hypocrites. So it's a very toxic uh, ideology, and yet they continued to package it as science. Um, so it attained this great academic credibility, right? It was like game theory and stuff, no empirical research, right. but just this series of aspersions on the public sector. And it's very interesting because even at the time, uh, some people recognized it as toxic. Yeah. <laughs> public life. And as I actually just yesterday got a note from someone who had been exposed to this in the 1980s. And he said he recognized it as like cancerous, you know, at the time, but it was being treated as though it were a science. Mm -hmm. And the phrase I use um, in the or I think I use it in the book, I've definitely used it since, is property supremacy. Yeah, pro that's right. Proper, mm -hmm. the, for the property yeah. privileged. Yeah. yeah, but it's all, it's not only that. And I think that's important because I actually, I have a wonderful writing group. And when I was writing, you know, a lot of this and, and um, uh, you know, in earlier drafts, I had a friend who's, you know, brilliant, wonderful. She's like, this is so racist. You have to just say it and name it. And I'm like, well, they're not actually talking about race. And I have to be mindful of my evidence and, you know, but also another part of me wanted not just to make it about, you know, to kind of reduce it to that racial um, element, because I think there's something very sad that happens with white people in our country. Uh, and maybe it's changing now. It's so exciting to see the solidarity that we've seen about black, the movement for black lives and the, you know, times if you say something is about racism or affecting black people, men think they don't mean to, but they tune out because they think, oh, this isn't about me. Right. And so I really wanted lawyers to understand that this is going to affect them too. Right. This is going to take down their world and things they care about, like public education, security, like Medicare, like public health. All right. So, the, you know, the thing about Buchanan and, and his work that, you know, his public choice work that, you know, got him this Nobel Prize, which, you know, kind of legitimizes his theory, you know, is is, again, that it it's a theory. He didn't do experiments. There were no like sociological or psychological studies that were done. It's really much more like economic philosophy, you know, what what I think it would be like, you know, and we're actually living out the experiments of, of his ideas. And, you know, it kind of sucks. Frankly. Well, and it was rooted a lot in Darwin. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I think a lot of the shit he like wrote about was about like, you know, only the strong survive kind of bullshit, like adaptation and survival of the fittest. I mean, the, the same shit that like, you know, Reaganomics and Thatcherism was peddling at the same time. But that stuff is that stuff is like you can't use the animal kingdom that has no uh, like intentionality, right? no collective bargaining and say that that's how human beings work. And that's how we should create our eco eco economies. That's definitely a power grab. Right. And it doesn't acknowledge the fact that, you know, it's not, we're not starting from, you know, the, the primordial soup power has already existed yeah, people. Precisely. And, you know, in, uh, you know, prime pr power has been taken by people uh, unjustly. And that's where we're starting from. Well, and frankly, you know, given what we now know about the influence of, of dark money donors and on academia and the judiciary, I want disclaimers. I want yes, you to right, say yes. 
Where are, where, you know, what is influencing you? I don't want to, I don't want somebody to tell me, well, the second circuit has decided this case, you know, two to one. I want you to say in a two to one decision, Trump judges sided with the corporate interest. I want Mm -hmm. journalists reporting on studies to say that this research has been funded by Coke. I want academic journals to disclose if the professor submitting the paper has been privately funded. that's a really important point because tech I was thinking about this as you were as you were talking technically they do right technically when you submit a journal article for people that don't know it's a big interface you got a bunch of buttons you got a it's like filing your taxes and one of the questions they ask is you know do you need to disclose any conflicts of interest so number one that presumes that I'm a going to be honest and b that I even recognize I have a conflict of interest see my previous statement about like I don't know who coke is funding to fund something to fund something to fund me. And number two, they don't do the research. So they'll they'll comb through your footnotes. They'll make sure you're citing everything correctly. They'll make sure your page numbers are right. But if I say, oh, I'm funded by blah, blah, blah Institute, they don't go and see if there's a problem there. They just slap it on the, the paper, you know, but they don't, number one, they don't look at it and decide, do we want to publish this work? And number two, if they do publish it because they think it's legitimate, you know, research, they don't then explain to the reader what it is that has been funding the research. Yeah, and we need transparency in order to determine whether we're being fed, bought and paid for propaganda that's dressed Mm -hmm. up to look like, you know, the judgment of an independent actor, an independent academic. The way that it looks now, the funding is hidden from the public and the conclusions, you know, just happen to favor big donors. And this is confusing for for regular people who, like you know me, believed in the clash of ideals. And of course, this has been designed to be confusing. The money has been hidden. Yes, you know it, it's been intentionally hidden to make you believe, you know, that smart people genuinely support this agenda. When really, almost no one who isn't paid for by big dark money is going to support the plan to rig the system so that you know only a couple people always win and they get to keep almost all the money. Couldn't have said it better myself. Amen, sister. All right. So, everyone, that is episode two. Um, I hope you enjoyed our ranting and our raving. <laughs> and we just want to thank everyone for listening. I know I don't know how Mary feels, but, uh, you know, this shit is really important. And it is not getting talked about. And if you were not listening, then it would just be another, you know, screaming into the wind kind of thing. But with an election 10 weeks away or whatever, you know, eight weeks by the time this comes out, there's no time left, right? As, as Nancy said in her interview with us, it's the 11th hour. Vote Biden. Dude, yeah, dude, you got to. No, binary choices. Vote Biden. All right. Take care. Go ponder. Talk to you later. Bye. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger. Thank you.